0: You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne.
1: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to an episode of Einstein A Go-Go. It is that post-Valentine's Day fuzz we're all in. <laughs> For those who uh, partook in this uh, tragic event, I, know, I got a bowl of chips. It was dodgy. <laughs> I'm Dr Shane. You are listening to 3RRR. In the studio with me is Dr Lauren. No doubt you did well. <laughs>
2: Do you know what I did? I spent the entire day painting my house. How unromantic is that? On ladders. Yeah.
1: Where was your husband?
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Watching a cricket. Even extra <laughs> exactly, exactly.
2: Just ordering me around.
1: That's uh, that's
2: how our marriage works.
1: <laughs> it's I true see. love. Interesting. <laughs> Dr Catherine, how are you?
3: Good morning. Good, D- thank you, Shane. D-
1: did you have a good Valentine's Day?
3: It was nice, thank you, yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. We yeah. uh, have a rule for no Valentine's Day presents, but we um, <laughs> uh, went down to the city and celebrated in the nice warm weather. It was oh, a beautiful day yesterday. Oh, no, that's
1: cool. Yeah, very it was. It was a nice day, actually. I mean, uh, you know, on, you know, we had the big storms. Mm, I mean, mm. My son and I, we sat out and we put the garage door up and sat out, got oh, a new right. record for lightning strikes. We saw 25. Fantastic. Wow. It was gold. Yeah, wanted to get a golf club and try. Anyway, uh, Chris K.P., good morning. How you doing? Yeah. I'm
0: so 25 before you got struck, I presume. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, before, before the, um, his little brother got struck, because we put him out with some tinfoil on him. <laughs> well, otherwise there wasn't many strikes in our area. Yeah, see,
0: it's, v- it's very, very easy to uh, dedicate your body to science after you're dead, but yeah. you've, you've made a much more courageous mm. decision. Oh, yeah.
1: Now, let's get into some science news, because it's been a whopper of a week, Right, Dr. Lauren? Mm-hmm.
2: It has, it, it has. has.
1: Now, what have you got?
2: So I'm very excited because I get to talk about eye research, which I'm not normally allowed to, so it's quite exciting today. Um, but, the, yeah, I'm just joking with that, by the way. But, no, it's very cool. This is new um, technology that's coming out, looking at a uh, contact lens which is going to help people with macular degeneration be able to see better. So macular degeneration is the eye disease where you lose your central vision, so you're mm-hmm. no longer able to see people's faces and read. And what the people who have macular degeneration can actually do is use their peripheral vision to to do those tasks, but unfortunately our peripheral vision isn't as as clear as our central vision, so the resolution's not as good. So there are low vision aids around that can help people with macular degeneration by making things bigger, so by magnifying, by making them bigger and brighter and bolder. Uh, And what this is is actually a contact lens which has a telescope on it, and so the person can have that contact lens on and it actually um, basically magnifies the light coming into the eye to make the images look larger. Now, this is actually um, a device that's come out of uh, Switzerland and it's actually a second prototype. The first one was just that. So it was just a telescope that sat on the contact lens that that magnified the images. But obviously it's a bit tricky when you're walking around normally because one eye is seeing a big image, one eye is seeing a normal image. Mm. So the cool thing with this now is that it's actually got the ability to toggle between modes. And what the person can do is actually just blink their eye to turn the magnifier on or off.
1: No. I have to ask a question. Mm-hmm. We blink normally.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's true. Uh, how do you not turn it on and off?
2: <laughs> so I am assuming it's not actually specified too much, but what I'm assuming is that it's a very you know, deliberate blink of a certain amount of pressure. Okay. So more like okay. a screwing your eyes up type right. of blink. Right. Yeah. Okay. But uh, it is very cool because what it, how it works is it's actually um, a polarised filter. So when you sort of screw your eye up, it actually, either makes that filter on or off, which makes that image, you know, standard or, or magnified. Mm. Uh, but it's it's really the first oh, sorry, the, the most recent in a whole line of uh, uses for contact lenses. So you can use contact lenses to check your blood sugar levels, you can use contact lenses to slowly deliver drugs to the body. Uh, and they're also working on contact lenses with sort of virtual reality images. So. Head up mm.
0: display. That's what I want. Yeah. Heads That's up what
1: display
0: I, yeah. 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 Exactly what it be. It's well,
1: about this last week, probably. You know me? I mean, my memory I, doesn't get back that far, but probably no, no. because I was disturbed that you know back in uh, yeah we were. I think it was you because <laughs> because it was disturbing to me that playing you know Galaga and stuff back in the eighties yes. they reflected the yeah. light. You know, you weren't watching the screen directly; you were seeing a reflection off mm. a, of a screen. And, and back then, I thought it's only a matter of time before this is in the car. Yeah. Mm. Every car will have this. Yeah. It'll be weeks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Twenty-five years later. <laughs> <laughs> we ain't got squats. so yeah, you know, it's like, a, yeah. Yeah, you know. It, Th- there's
2: uh, definitely, I mean, I, I know that there is a lot of research in that sort of area. And I think one of the issues with cars, obviously, the distraction.
1: That's yeah. Sort of the, the cons- distraction. <laughs> Do you know, it's mm. interesting you say that, Dr. Lauren, because I was driving down the Telemarine Freeway the mm. other day, and there's one of these signs, it's one of the, um, I think it's oh, a road yes. traffic authority I mean. signs, and it says, you know, distractions, kill. whatever, mm. blah, blah, blah. Yes. And then the next sign says, fantastic furniture. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I'm yeah. like, <laughs> hang on, what is wrong with this picture? Yeah. Yes. I understand the very clear message from the first sign, yep. and it's very easy to read in your peripheral vision. Yeah. But then when you get to the advertising one that's yep. sort of, you know, and there's a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. Well, it kind of ruins the point, <laughs> and then you turn the corner just as you get into that merge between the colder and the, yeah. and, and there's one of the electronic ones. Yes, which is changing, changing yes. as you drive. Yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, but this is know. why
0: this is why we need to uh, advance driverless cars. Oh, yeah. mm. so we can avoid, we can indulge in distractions. We can, <laughs> we can we we just can watch can ads. Sit back and watch the ads or I whatever. I think we just
1: you know? go peopleless cars. Full stop. <laughs>
0: Well, we could do that. It'd be hard for you to get from A to B if you're not in the car, obviously.
1: Mm, Uh. That's a minor point. All
0: right. uh, Moving on,
1: Dr. Catherine. uh, Back...
3: Yes, yeah, so I've got some news about back pain, and in fact, following on from distraction, there's been a research that's released this week uh, out of Sydney Uni where they've found that distraction is actually the leading cause of back pain. Um, distraction. Yeah, distraction. So hmm. if you're distracted in doing a manual task, you have a 25 <laughs> times greater ah. chance of having a back pain incident.
1: Really? Oh, isn't that, that interesting? That a lot of sense, actually.
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because you're lifting something, you're not thinking about lifting correctly, I suppose. And mm. yeah, and, well, and I think that
0: if you've if you've had any kind of injuries. And yep. it's been especially back pain, you learn quickly how to do things in a way that doesn't hurt it mm. because you're thinking about mm. it. But yeah. if you're not thinking about it... Absolutely, yes. you not yeah. concentrating.
3: Okay. So that was the top reason, in fact. Um, so this was research out of Sydney Uni, and they were looking at the immediate risk factors for back pain, so in the four days leading up to an incident. And we have fairly little evidence about sort of risk factors for immediate back pain. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of evidence about longer-term risk factors, so for example smoking, lack of physical activity lead to back pain, sort of injuries but there's little evidence looking at the immediate factors. So the top one was distraction. Mm-hmm. Further down the list were doing man- manual tasks where you're lifting an object in an awkward way mm-hmm. and that makes sense as well if mm-hmm. you're sort of um, uh-huh. not balanced or not on two feet and you're trying to lift something. Mm-hmm. Uh, further down the list was lifting people or animals in <laughs> fact, so uh-huh. <laughs> be careful lifting yeah. your dog in an <laughs> (laughs)
1: Did they they classify which animals? Because it was a rabbit or something. (laughs) Well, it well, Actually, some of those rabbits are pretty big. And also, we're mm-hmm. getting yeah, yeah,
0: down behind the couch. It's, <laughs> it's very <laughs> awkward.
1: <laughs> the lift and turn. Very awkward,
0: Yeah. Come here, you little bugger. <laughs> the bunny lift and twist, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: the other unusual finding about this study was they found that most back pain injuries occurred in the morning, so between 7am and midday. i
1: done why that. Yeah. Why is, is that? Is that we're more distracted in the morning, or is there something... Because I heard, and you can tell me if this is total BS, but i believed it for 25 years, that we're taller in the morning. True.
3: Well, that would link with this sort of hypothesis. So the study didn't look at the mechanistic aspects of why back pain was greater in the morning. But uh, what they hypothesise is as you sleep overnight and you're lying down, the little discs, the interbredal discs between the vertebral bodies in your spine, so they're the discs between each of the bones in your spine, and they act to cushion from any forces and also mm. allow your spine to move. Yep. So overnight, those discs swell. And what may happen, in fact, in the morning is that because they've swollen, and that might link uh, linking with. The height, She may slightly be taller in the morning, although not noticeable. Um,
1: Dr. Lauren did look taller than me this morning, than last time I saw her. I'm, I'm
2: taking notes here. I'm like, right, more sleep. That's, that's, that's the
0: solution. It, it's not cumulative, though. You're not going to wake up oh, in a yeah. month's
1: time and be 6'3. Can you imagine, Dr. Lauren? She's going for a job interview at 2 o'clock. Yeah. She has a morning nap, yeah, yeah, totally. like until about 1 30. It. So she walks in proud and ready to go. You know. and, and yeah,
0: if it's an interview with the Australian basketball team, it's not going to happen.
2: I
4: think I'm in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, doctor.
3: Right. But, but maybe because of the swollen discs, it may be mm. that they can't actually um, withstand that stress. Mm. So that mm. may be the cause. But further research now needs to look into that, mm. Um, mm. because real—I mean—back pain's very common, and we don't—we're yeah. not progressing very far in terms of preventing it. Mm. Yeah. Could it
1: and
0: be if, that so, sorry, Could go. it be that in the morning, and I mean this seriously, mm. we're a bit unco? Like, you just sort of, you know, I seriously, if I have to get up, you know, to to deal with if there's a strange noise in the house, which is usually a dog, but you can't be too sure, um, you know, I sort of, I find myself instinctively reaching out to the wall and the doorway just because I know that if I don't I'm lucky to lose my balance slot not, not in a fall over you know um, head over heels way just in a kind of unco bump into things way mm, mm. and that's just getting out of bed and I'm thinking in the mornings you're a bit slow to get up you haven't got mm. your, your, your reflexes aren't really firing I'm wondering if maybe the, the awkwardness you're talking about mm. you do things poorly you're in funny positions um, and if, if there is something that's you know, physiological about your discs. That's going to be what? What a nasty perfect storm that is! Mm. Mm.
3: Absolutely, and certainly being fatigued and tired is another another factor. So if you're waking up still tired in the morning, that's uh, not another yeah. good good thing yeah. to do. I'm
1: always very careful when I go for one of those midnight tinkles. Like for me, because of aiming carefully. What are you careful about? <laughs> <laughs> that's because, not the toilet because I know physically, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just not up to it. <laughs> Chris KB, have we got some more? Save us with some science. I'll do my best. Um,
0: this, is, uh, this actually goes back a little way. Uh, I want to talk to sea slugs. Mm-hmm. Hello. Um, and, you know, normally a phrase like that would make you think, oh, here we go, what kind of a weird thing is this? And indeed it is. Uh, except, of course, that I, in my research, have found a, at least one sea slug forum. <laughs> so I'm hoping that there are sea slug fanciers out there uh, who've just <laughs> whose ears have pricked up. And I hope I don't disappoint them. Um, so this paper was published in December uh, in Biological Bulletin by some guys from University of South Florida. Uh, And what they found is an incredibly weird phenomenon. So a sea slug uh, lives in the ocean, or the sea if you prefer, also in a sea cucumbers. They eat plankton, uh, they eat rotting, decaying detritus on the ocean floor, and they eat algae off corals and stuff. So they they nibble on all that kind of small stuff. um, And that's whoop de doo that's fine. But the question is, if they run out of those things, and I know you would think, how could they run out of decaying stuff in the ocean? But <laughs> apparently they do. Um, if they run out of decaying stuff, then uh, you know, what are they, how do they survive? And the obvious answer is, well, they don't, except mm. that they do. And the answer these guys found is that when they eat the algae, they actually take on, they actually ma- they maintain um, some, of the, some of, the, uh, of the genes from that algae, which is weird because algae are plant-like, sea slugs are animal-like, albeit very primitive. And what they're able to do is actually use those genes to take on the characteristics of the plant. Specifically, they can become photosynthetic. Mm. They can actually start drawing in light mm. and producing, you know, matter, and, you know, sugars from that, energy from that, um, and keep themselves alive for a while. And, in fact, there's a great quote here. So one of the, uh, the authors, Sydney K. Pierce, actually said, there's no way on earth that genes from an alga should work inside an animal cell. Mm. And yet, here they do. <laughs> it's basically, saying this makes zero sense yeah. in any conventional understanding of animals and plants mm-hmm. and, and autotrophic or heterotrophic existence, but these guys are basically able to suck sunlight for a while, we don't know how, how well, mm. until they find some real proper food. Um, so, yeah, th- there is basically, I guess, um, there's just no way to be a thin sea slug. <laughs> <laughs> Constantly eating. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Cool stuff. Well, uh, remember last week I mentioned the um, the solar panel installation was happening for the me. fusion installation. fusion installation. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> uh, well, it was installed this week, and mm-hmm. I, I was I was so excited. You know, you could uh, as they were coming online, the power was being converted energy, sorry, Thank being you. converted into uh, into the home, and and then all of a sudden the guy said, uh, "We've got to turn it off now um, because the inspector's got to check it."
0: Oh. And I was like, oh.
1: "What?" Inspector from where? Um, uh, from Thomas the Tank Engine. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah the Yeah. The, the uh, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. I, I have no bloody idea. Some <laughs> safety inspector has to come, some government inspector has to come and say, yep, it looks good. When? Um, well, they said Friday or Monday. So it's still off. <laughs>
5: so oh, all no! this sunlight, yeah,
1: all this Uh-oh. hot day, nothing. <laughs> and then, and then, wait for it, because guess what, there's more. Then I have to contact, once I have the inspection's certificate, I then have to contact the power company so they can come and make sure that the meter is correctly configured. Hmm. My response to that was, configure this. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And so there's this delay. I was all excited, and the the energy was flowing in. That's the thing. I know it bloody works. I'm tempted to go and switch it on myself. (laughs) But I'm sure there are consequences to... <laughs> I was going to say, not
2: the Dr. Shane advocates. <laughs> no, not do not Do not do that at home, <laughs> do that at
1: home folks, if you're getting things installed. But, but it's interesting Did there is this process. Were you told yeah. this at all? No, it was I was not. So you. So this is the sort of thing that I wanted to tell people, you know, about mm. this, just to give people an idea of what happens when you go through this process because these are the things that you're not told about. You think that, mm. you, you know, a registered electrician and so forth is obviously doing the installation. It's all, it was very professional. The guys were fantastic. They were supposed to be there at 7.30 in the morning. They roll up at 7. 20 which was just perfect because it was going to be hot that day, poor buggers, and they did it all they repaired cracked tiles that were That's any nice. problematic because well, because once they put the panels over the tiles, That's it. your ability mm. to change one of those yeah. tiles, I have to say, is a big fat zero, mm. so they've got to make sure that the ones they, they cover are all good. so they did all that that was fantastic. they, they you know, took about four hours to do the, the four kilowatts panels. but now we've got to wait. Mm. It's,
0: just like, it's like running downstairs to you know on Christmas morning to look at presents under the tree and then realizing it's still Christmas Eve yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, all I was, stuffs there. Yeah. I
1: was a little disturbed, and the thing was, of course, I managed to hook up. Uh, they've got this system that monitors it, and I managed to hook up my laptop to that, so I could watch it. And I was watching all these microconverters come online. It was all exciting, and I was freaking yeah. out, yeah. you know. And then, and then, uh, boom! i have got oh. to turn it off. I thought, geez, what a, what a letdown. So, uh, yeah, sorry, folks, I'm gonna have to hold off on the excitement until next week. <laughs> I'm still on regular call. Yeah. Great. <laughs> I think it's fair to say. Uh, We're going to take a break now. Uh, We have got some amazing guests in the studio today, though. We've got Fiona Russell. She's uh, a vaccine specialist from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute coming in. We've also got James Goodridge. If you've ever been out to Hillsville Sanctuary, he's the guy that runs the, um, the Predatorial Bird Show. It's mm. extraordinary, and he's going to talk about how they track them, how they train them. Uh, there's a lot of science behind that. And we've also got Kate White, who is an author who's written a book called Keeping Women in Science. So we'll be talking to her first, actually, in just a few moments.
4: You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia.
1: We are joined in the studio now by Adjunct Associate Professor Kate White from the Federation University of Australia. How are you, Kate? Good, thank you. Now, you've uh, put out a book that I know the two ladies in the studio uh, with me have been grabbing off me uh, over the last five minutes, as has my colleague Chris. It's called Keeping Women in Science, and it was just published at the end of last year. Um, Tell me a bit about this book. I mean, what's what's the goal?
6: Well it's known that women scientists leave the profession in greater proportions than men and they're underrepresented in mm. leadership roles. So the research set out to understand why this why this happens. Um, I was invited by the Equality in Science Committee at the um, Flory Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health in Melbourne to explore how women researchers could build effective career paths. So what I did was to analyse the the, um, uh, workforce data for Mm -hmm. men and women over a five-year period, and I also looked at who was getting funding, looked Mm. at that by gender. Um, And... uh, and then I interviewed 40 research scientists at the Institute, you know, from final year PhDs right up to um, lab heads and members of the executive, mm-hmm. um, and, that, and, and both men and women, so it was a, a very, um, it was just an amazing experience, yeah, and yeah. they're so passionate about what they do. Yeah, of course. Um, And so what what I then did is summarised and analysed for um, some dominant themes. And and there were things around building careers, around job satisfaction. Um, To to ask a scientist to talk about why they do it is really an amazing experience to listen to to why they're so passionate about what they do. And it's certainly not about the money.
1: Um, But it can be.
6: Yeah, well,
1: for for this group, it wasn't. Yeah, it's it's interesting, though, because I don't know many poor scientists, I have to say. Mm. Um, All of my colleagues who are scientists, who have been professionals or whatever, are doing very well. So it's one of those fields that often, I think, gets a bad rap financially. And money's not the motivator. Mm. Absolutely. But it's not like the arts, where Mm. you will literally be, you know busting your butt to to pay your bills for a long long time in the performing and visual arts whereas in the sciences we we do pretty well even though it's not the motivator
2: although i will say like i think it varies throughout your career i think it's one of the big issues for sciences is the phd stages so when mm. you literally are
1: on, on scholarship bread and yeah, water yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Not much.
2: laughs> yeah exactly but no yeah. you're right i think you know compared to the arts we do have an easier oh, we, we
1: have a, we have a good well we have a good Good prospects for employment, mm. um, although sadly a lot of that's outside the science, which yeah. is yeah, that's a negative. Sorry, Kate, go ahead.
6: Yeah, some of the other themes that um, that emerged from the data were around the organisational culture mm-hmm. and whether it is gendered, and my conclusion is that it is definitely gendered. Yep. Um, issues around dual careers, work-life balance, generational issues. That's that was one of my key findings in the whole research. Um, career progression for women what are some of the strategies for keeping women mm. in science and then looking at new models for science research
1: mm. I know, I mean looking through your book um, some, some of the data you've accumulated here is quite, it is disturbing when you look at the, um, for example, the success rates for grants and I mean no doubt there are a lot of factors influencing that but there is a stark difference between success rates for, for male and female applicants which is, you know frankly not good enough, I think that's something that has to shift and what 's your thinking on how we go about doing that?
6: I think one of the the issues that that emerged from this book is that we have a funding model that is doesn 't suit younger scientists, both mm. men and women um, it 's predicated on uh, people working on grants full-time, and both men and women would prefer to work part-time. And there's no recognition that, that the Gen Ys Want to do science quite differently mm, to those mm. that are now in leadership
1: positions mm. in science. Yeah, I mean it's interesting on this show. But I always say, you know, if you can't tell me what you're doing in a page, mm. go away. Mm. Um, and, and I know that in your book you you have some of the analysis of the cost of putting in grants. I think it, uh, the numbers I, I don't remember specifically around seventeen thousand dollars right. per mm. per grant, which is an extraordinary mm. expenditure of taxpayers' funds. On applying for taxpayers' funds, I mean, it's just, it is, you know, It's like uh, you know certain um, certain things where you have to pay. You know there are certain um, shall we say pay TV type uh, arrangements where you have to pay for the privilege mm-hmm. to pay. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. this is a, this is a, a ridiculous notion that we spend so much money. Mm-hmm on doing that and specifically if you're in in a group where you're disadvantaged like the younger researchers um in in terms of if if you had your your choice of the tops of the three things we would do um to try and resolve many of the issues that you you talk about in the book i mean what sort of things structurally should we be doing to to keep women in the workforce
6: um well, one is the funding model it it needs to change it needs mm-hmm. to recognize that that um, both men and women at certain stages of their career will want to work less than full time mm-hmm. and uh, adjust grants accordingly yep. so that that 's yep. a, a big structural issue. Um, other issues are around um, <coughs> helping women uh, to combine family and career. Um, you know, I've, I've given a really best uh, practice case study of a woman who actually goes on maternity leave and how she and her um, supervisor negotiate that up front mm. how she's supported mm. while she's on maternity leave yep. and how she's supported to transition back um, and you know while women are on maternity leave sometimes their research can go ahead or can continue with the support of a research assistant.
1: Absolutely mm. Yeah.
6: Um, and then the transitioning back is to allow them to come back part time and then mm. to build up their hours um,
1: and I think with that point too we have to see that that is an investment not a cost absolutely. so often that is described as a cost? It is absolutely not. We've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars Mm. training these people Mm. to a certain point. If you lose them off the conveyor at that point, Mm. that is a loss. And keeping them on with a a, a measly sum, Mm. you know, of of getting that research assistant uh, support is a a massively smart investment, I think, in, in science. Anything else?
6: Um...
1: I got you on the spot here. But...
6: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it, th- the point that you're making, Shane, relates back to this whole uh, innovation agenda in Australia. Mm. I mean, if we're really serious about it, um, we will try to keep that talent in science research. Yep. Absolutely. No. Mm. And to say, um, as there was an underlying theme from uh, the perhaps some of the older generation that I interviewed, that women can either be first-class researchers or they can be mothers and they can't do both. And we have to just demolish that, um, that either-or.
1: Yeah, I mean, but it's the 19th century, so, you know, you can't expect too much from them. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, seriously, I mean, that kind, that kind of thinking, uh, you know, uh, speaking for the males in the room, me and Chris K.P., um, you know, we just find that absolutely absurd and, and disgusting and and would love to see those people. And weird. And, and, and weird. and just just weird, yeah. It's just, it's just, just there's no logic behind it. It's... um. Yeah. If there's anything biology's taught us, it's diversity is strength. And take that out of the system, and it's not as strong.
0: So. And there is a yeah, there's a lot there's a lot to be said for um, for diversifying your talent pool.
1: If you cut Absolutely. part of it out. Why would
0: you cut part of it out? Yeah, it yeah. makes serious sense to me. I have yeah. a question. Um, so if science uh, and, and clearly science is not doing this very well, are there other professions that are doing this better that that you can identify? I mean, science is unusual in the way it undertakes its, its, its activities, but are there, are there, I guess, best practised industries or professions where they're, they're actually nailing this whole gender thing in terms mm. of career paths?
6: I think there are some best-practice countries, okay. like Sweden, where they do it extremely well, where um, the whole idea of parental leave is shared.
4: Mm. And it's, yeah. it's a,
6: a joint responsibility. It's not the woman's responsibility. Mm. And if, if, you know, if a country has in place good national policies, there's a flow down effect into mm. all sorts, into every profession. Um, so I think that, you know, um, when the national context uh, supports young couples wanting to, Combine career and family, mm-hmm. that's when it works mm-hmm. well.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, look, Kate, good luck with the book. Uh, it's called Keeping Women in Science, Folks, if you want to get a hold of it, by Kate White, and it's published by Melbourne University Press. Thank you very much for coming in, Kate, and we hope that it has the impact that everyone in this room uh, expects that should happen somewhere last century, but hopefully <laughs> soon. Thanks so much.
4: You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia.
1: Now, in the studio, we have one of the raptor keepers from Hillsville Sanctuary. It's uh, James Goodridge. He has come in wearing a glove. And Chris K.P. has tried to get uh, Dr. Lauren to jump onto that club, but has failed. James, welcome to the studio. Thank you very
5: much. Thanks for having me. And look, I was wondering if uh, Foxcat Rabbit, is that a, was that a good lead-in song for <laughs> perfect, like, a work with, with eagles? You know, yeah, it's all prey items.
1: Mate, I spent about two hours finding that track this morning. Um, <laughs> there
5: were eagles <laughs> salivating all over Melbourne.
1: I'm glad you enjoyed it. Now, for those people who've been out to Hillsville Sanctuary and have seen this amazing performance that you guys put on, they'll know what we're talking about. For those who haven't, um, if you go out there, there is this sort of amphitheater that you guys have set up. That's right, yep. And, and you put on the display with... How many birds are involved? Uh, we do two shows a day, mm-hmm. um, of so 12 o'clock
5: and 2.30, and uh, we try and get about 10 different species of bird into each show, so that's yep. uh, raptorial birds of prey and parrots as well. Right. Um, and we sort of try and get about 8 or 10 species in in about 25 minutes. So mm-hmm. it's go, go, go um there's lots of birds coming and going obviously we don't fly the raptors and the parrots at the same time because <laughs>
1: that's a different show
5: that's a very you can you can only do that show once but yeah. you'll never forget it though that's, yeah, that's,
1: that's right <laughs> the, the adults only show
5: yeah yeah so uh, that would end badly Better so say we do try and uh, work the two in together yeah um so we fly everything from we've got a little kestrel who's mm. 150 grams, so Australia's smallest right. raptor, through to wedge-tailed oh. Eagles, which are Australia's largest raptor, at nearly 4 kilos for our big female. Um, and then we've got a whole bunch of parrots as well. So some parrots that we have are in the wild around here anyway, but we also have things like Eclectus parrots from North Queensland, and we have Major Mitchell Cockatoos and mm. uh, Red-tailed Black Cockatoos, which are endangered in Victoria. So we've got a few uh, different species that we try and show people, um, and we're, we're highlighting a lot of the endangered species as well. Zoo yep. Victoria is committed to fighting extinction, so mm. uh, we try and show showcase some of the, the rarer birds as well um, mm-hmm. in our show and around the sanctuary as well of mm-hmm. course we've got breeding programs for lots of uh, animals as well.
1: Now, now James in terms of the training and so forth I mean w- when I was there one one of the things that amazed me and maybe this wasn't part of the show maybe it just happened <laughs> um, but at one point one of the one of the very larger eagles you've got there actually seemed to fly between two rows of the cl- the crowd I mean yeah, you know, it was sure. quite, quite very close I mean mm. quite extraordinary I mean do you train them to do that or are they just doing that?
5: Uh, Largely they're just doing
1: it, and to me,
5: I've done a lot of these shows, and that's still the cool part for me, is that the birds have a lot of choice. Obviously we're free-flying birds, so they have a lot of choice. We can get them to fly from point A to point B, but then the height that they fly there is really up to them. And some days they're a bit nervous, and the last few days we've had wild eagles hang around, so our birds have been a bit nervous, they're flying higher, they're looking up a lot, they're thinking, am I going to fly away? Thankfully, they haven't. Uh, but to say, yeah, that's sort of a cool part. And you can have two people sitting next to each other, and we've got some of our smaller owls will fly between their heads. Mm. Um, right so yeah, right yeah. over your shoulder. Yeah. People will get wings across the face sometimes. Yep. I mean, there are people who aren't such big fans of birds. There are places you can sit where it's less likely <laughs> that's going to happen. Uh, but if you really like your birds or you want to get close to them, like in then, the it's car. A, yeah, <laughs> then it is a great experience uh, for people to, and often, you know, even bird nerds who go looking for birds in the wild you might be able to see an eagle in the distance, but to have one suddenly go right past Uh, your head uh, is pretty cool. And that's sort of what we're about and what the show's about, um, is to educate and inspire people. So Mm. uh, there was a a study conducted by Dr Liam Smith at Monash um, about emotional arousal. So he discovered that uh, if a bird flies really close to you and you go, wow, that was really cool, and I now feel something for that bird, and then we say, by the way, there's only 60 pairs of barking Mm. owls left in the wild, Mm. then you go... I actually do care about that because I had a really close emotional experience with that bird, Mm. and therefore what you ask me to do that will help, I'm more likely to do it. Mm. Um, Mm, So for us, it's a a really powerful tool Mm. uh, to actually engage people with wildlife and to then help get them to help us fight extinction mm-hmm. as well.
1: It, it's amazing. I, I know on my phone, I think I mentioned this to you earlier, that the um, the saving photo is of my son and I realised when we were setting up this interview, it was him when he was at your show. Oh, and, right. Because he has this amazing look on his face like, you know, he's just, you know, one of these eagles has just flown within a, half a foot of his face. and it's had a near-death experience. Near-death experience. <laughs> um, have, have any children been carried off? <laughs> <laughs> um, do you, yeah, the other one. I,
5: I do often make that joke <laughs> in the show, actually, where I say to people, when I'm talking about a witch eagle and say that they they eat small mammals and when i say small mammals i don't mean small children i mean things like rabbits and bandicoots so fairly small things like that um certainly you know it's a bit like a roller coaster Mm. where there's a high perceived risk and a low actual risk right yeah Um, yeah. so certainly you know occasionally say birds will come into contact with people very rarely where you get a wing across the face but often that's these birds are amazing they're they're working Mm. in a very small space especially a big bird like an eagle it's a small space we put Seven, 800 people in front of yep, them and yep. then try and get them to fly over their heads. So these yeah. birds are operating in a very fine margin. And, of course, the birds have got other birds to look at. The wind is blowing in a weird direction or it's swirling around in the arena. So it makes it really difficult for mm, them. Mm. Um, so they actually do an amazing job. The birds really are the stars that mm, they yeah, come out and, yeah. uh, and are able to cope with all these different conditions every day.
1: Yeah. Now, now tell us about the, the training of these birds because, you know, you, you stand there, you've got your hand out with a <laughs> appropriately covered with an, a, a big glove, a very large glove. glove, very yep. large glove. Um, but, you know, these birds come back. I mean, you, you're, not, you're not confining them in any way. They're not That's secured. Right. How do you I mean, falconry has been around for, what, thousands oh, of years? Oh, two and so a half thousand Two so and a half thousand yeah. years. So so how do you actually get them to to do the do the show?
5: Yeah, sure. I mean that that's a there's a kind of a long answer there. I mean, obviously, we, we make it easy for them to stay. Mm-hmm. And obviously, what you're seeing in the show is the result of lots of training. So yep. there's, there's lots of small steps that we've taken. And throughout our training, we're, we're minimising the risks. Okay. So you're always trying to just minimise the risk. So in training, before we take a bird outside, of course, we've done lots of work inside. And the bird's done lots of repetitions of coming to the glove. So every time it comes mm-hmm. to the glove, it gets food. It gets its favourite thing. Um, so it's just positive reinforcement. So the bird learns. Yep. Every time I see that James guy and the, he holds his glove up, I'm going to get food. So that's right. great, I'm coming. Yep. Um, and raptors are kind of easy to train. So parrots are a little bit trickier. The parrots are quite sociable. They like to hang out. They, yeah, there's lots yeah. of different rewards for a parrot. You know, They kind right. of like it when the crowd claps or the crowd cheers. <laughs> raptors really couldn't care, I don't think. I think for them it's just about the food. They're hunters. Right. That's yeah, what yeah. they're out there for. Sure. And they know that when the show's on, it's hunting time. So get out there, get the food. Don't think about it, just yep. do it.
1: And it doesn't matter to them that they're not doing the kill? No, okay. That's no, it's yeah. just it's about the food. Uh, it's about so the
5: food. What we'll do with our birds, and say we've got a black kite who flies around. He takes catches up in the air, so he's mm-hmm. very cool to yep. watch. Yep. And we can throw up little mouse heads and stuff up into the air, and he catches them in his feet and eats them as he's flying around. So he gets say twenty or thirty percent of his food as catches, yeah. And then the other seventy percent is waiting for him as soon as he flies home. So he gets a big round of applause, and that's his signal. Of, okay, I'm not going to give him any more catches. So you may as oh, well no, go home. So but, we rest, sort of but the rest of the mouth is waiting. The mouse is waiting for him. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so nice. as soon as you fly out the back, yeah. he yeah. knows that there's a big chunk of food. So So that's his motivator. So he's going, well, I could fly away and find my own, but really, like (laughs) everybody, I'm as lazy as I'm going to get away with being. (laughs) Um, And laziness is... I shouldn't really call it laziness, but, you know, throughout the animal kingdom, yeah. you, you look at lions, they're as lazy as koalas. They yeah, sleep yeah, yeah. for 20-odd mm-hmm, yeah. hours a day. Mm-hmm. Um, because and, and
1: to be fair, your birds have just been flying around for mm-hmm. half an hour doing the shows. So. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah,
5: yeah. And they're going, well, we just want to get the easiest food yeah. possible. So, yeah. so that's sort of what's keeping them there. Um, so the, the training that we're doing is just lots of repetition uh, yeah. over time um, and birds, and we need to have a strong relationship. And right. So, as you said, falconry's been around for a long time. Uh, in the old days, they were uh, quite rough with their birds or they had different techniques and now we have sort of modern scientific techniques of positive reinforcement and uh, understanding animal behavior a lot better um so we build a relationship so in the old days if your bird flew away and you'd treated it quite harshly then of course it's unlikely it's going to come back. But yeah. for us, if a bird yeah. flies away, it looks at us and goes, "Oh, that James guy's pretty nice. He's always got food. Yep. I'm a lot more likely yep. to come back to him." Yep. Yep. Yep.
2: Fine. So, James, you kind of probably partly answered my question, but is, is there a big difference between different types of species in terms of how they, you know, approach that yeah,
5: training? Yeah, there is. Um, I mean, certainly, and uh, I often think of falconry as being it's an art and a science. Mm-hmm. So, the, certainly, the same principles apply, mm-hmm. but it is an art. There is an interpretation to it. So, being able to read different birds and what they're kind of trying to work out what they're thinking mm. or what they're being motivated by is a big challenge of what we do. Mm. Um, but yeah, some species are sort of a lot cruisier mm. and some species are a bit more highly strung um, and so they, they've got a, a quicker flight time. You know, mm. something will happen and they'll go, right, I'm out of here. Mm. Mm. Um, and they're the frustrating ones. Mm. Uh, but uh, yeah, some birds are, are just a lot cruisier. Like our red-tailed black cockatoos, the most beautiful birds we've got. They're just really cruisy, really easy to work with. Mm. Sulphur crested's the tree moves and they're sort of off and away. They're thinking, right, I'm, it's time to fly away. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, James, let me ask you just finally, um, the the way in which you keep track of your your birds, you, you brought in before one of the tracking devices, so you, you actually can um, keep track of them wherever they are. Is that right?
5: Yeah, most of the raptors fly with a... Uh, radio tracking device and in the Yarra Valley where it's reasonably mountainous, uh, they work to sort of 5 or 6 kilometres. If we're out in the desert you'd probably get a signal for 30 or 40 kilometres. Most of them are mounted on one of the bird's tail feathers so we, we just crimp on a little piece of metal and then we can attach a transmitter onto that. Uh, so then the transmitter, the, I brought in a big one, so this would go onto an eagle, and it's only, what do you reckon, the size of a 10-cent mm, piece? Yeah, mm, um, yeah. So in there's a little little mm. battery, and then the little transmitter, and then there's just an aerial hanging off it as well. So in the shows, you don't really see the aerials a lot of the time. They're kind of the birds pre into their feathers. The birds don't really worry about them. They're just on there all the time, and then we just turn it on and off uh, with a little magnet. Mm. And other birds will then will have a, a leg-mounted transmitter, so not all right. birds will have one on their tail feather. For something like a peregrine falcon, which is the fastest animal in the world, can get up to speeds of over... 350 k's now, we still don't know how fast they go, it's very hard to measure. But uh, some falcons, and a found if you mount that on their tail feather, the speed that they get up to in the g forces of a peregrine falcon coming down in a big stoop mm. uh, is so fast that it will actually rip the tail feather out. Wow! Um, so with yeah. a bird like that, we mount it around their leg.
1: Yeah, that's it's just amazing stuff. Mm. James, thanks so much for coming in. I have to say, before I saw your show, I was really proud that I trained our budgie. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> uh, but, yeah, I can get it out of the cage. I can hand it to the kids. You know, it's, it's just, uh, just hold up
5: your hand, Doctor Zane. So you've got all your fingers, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> You've done a good job?
1: Pretty much. I have, I've had less success with my Moray snowflake eel. They um,
5: don't fly very well.
1: Well, they, they can't see. <laughs> so my finger and a, and a prawn are very similar. Anyway, look, it's um, it's an amazing show. You, you have, I have to say, one of the best bloody jobs around. It must be a lot of fun. It is good fun.
5: There, there is a lot of scrubbing poo and chopping up small dead animals that kind of <laughs> stuff, which is not so glamorous. But, uh, uh, but you the know, good bits are certainly yeah, very good.
1: Uh, look, I, I'm, I'm sure the good bits make it worthwhile. And folks, if you if you have a chance, get out there and see the show that James uh, is running out there with the Raptors because it is spectacular. And in fact, the whole the whole sanctuary is 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 great to see. It's really evolved over the last sort of the ten fifteen years, and. Um, is is a great uh, example of just just what I think zoos can be. In, in yeah, that's age, certainly so. where zoos
5: are going. Absolutely. Um, and if I just mentioned two next summer, uh, mm-hmm. the show that we do is called Spirits of the Sky, yeah. and yeah. it's turning 25. Right. So it'll actually sure. be featured heavily next summer. So we'll actually have. Uh, new and funky stuff and when people come then there'll be lots of things happening around the sanctuary as well uh, for people who are coming
1: Brilliant. James Goodridge is from uh, Zoos Victoria specifically Hillsville Sanctuary and is one of the raptor keepers out there
2: You are listening to a podcast from Community
4: Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia
1: And we're back. It's uh, 3RRR, folks. If you're wondering what station you're on, you're on the right station and you're listening to Einstein and Gogo. We have our third and final guest for today in the studio. It's Associate Professor Fiona Russell. She's from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. She also works as a paediatrician down at the Children's Hospital and is part of the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Fiona. Thank you, Shane. Now... um, you work in this area, I mean, a lot of this has been in the news lately, it's been a, there's been a lot of controversy going on, which is not surprising, but um, in particular around vaccines, preventable diseases and so forth, and, and part of your interest has been around some of the preventable diseases in low-income countries. Can you give us a bit of a picture, because here in Australia, you know, we, we don't walk, well, you would hope we don't walk around with diseases like measles, um, but... What sort of things are going on in some of the low-income countries that we'd be surprised about?
4: Yeah, look, Shane, I've um, been living in Vietnam for the last four years. I mm. came back last year back to Melbourne to, to live with my family. But while I was there, I was working at the um, the largest children's hospital, which is based in Hanoi. And unfortunately, Vietnam had a large measles um, outbreak while we were there last year. And we at the hospital would have seen at least two deaths from measles every day. Wow. And uh, that's just the tip of the iceberg. That's just one hospital. Um, while I was there as well, um, every year um, the country doesn't use the rubella vaccine up until recently, but um, there was, every year there's a large rubella outbreak, but um, in uh, two years ago there was a huge rubella outbreak, so we captured all the admissions to the newborn health uh, unit at that hospital and there was over 300 congenital rubella cases in that year with about a third of those babies Dying um, from congenital rubella, and luckily we don't see rubella here anymore because we've been using the vaccine Mm, for for many many, many years. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. So when you, I mean, when we talk about these, it seems, I mean, I know, I know financially it's a very different situation. Is that the primary reason why the vaccines are not being utilised there, or are there cultural and other reasons as well?
4: Yes, I think um, there's a few reasons. Um, some of it, some diseases are very visible. So measles, for example, and rubella are very visible, and there's a test, you can test mm-hmm. for it. But other diseases, such as pneumonia, which is what I work on, are less visible. They're just there all the time. It's the biggest reason why children die around the world, and um, it's potentially vaccine-preventable. And um, and and the new vaccines, for the ones for pneumonia and uh, um the ones for um, rotavirus, the commonest cause of diarrhoea and cervical cancer, those sorts of vaccines are, um, are, are very relatively mm. much more expensive mm. than um, mm. the traditional um, vaccines.
1: Now, now I, I was surprised when I read some of the information that um, your colleagues sent through to me about pneumonia being the commonest mm. reason why young children die. I, yeah. I, I was not aware of that. No. I mean, this is a fi- this is a, uh, something that I don't think many people would be aware of.
4: No, no. Malaria, TB, HIV, mm-hmm. A's, they all think that's the commonest stuff mm, because yeah. there's wonderful people out there promoting it. But the people, there's not enough promotion, I think, of of childhood pneumonia. There's mm. not enough attention to it, and that's been traditionally for a very long time. N-
1: now mm. you mentioned there that you know some of these things are preventable by vaccines. There's a lot of things that cause pneumonia, I assume. How, how big a proportion of those causes could we cover off?
4: Yeah, look, that's you're absolutely right. Um, there's uh, many different organisms that cause um, pneumonia and childhood pneumonia, but the bacteria Streptococcus pneumoniae is the biggest um, um, bacterial cause of pneumonia. So where Mm. studies have been um, done and when they've... Um, they're very difficult to sort of undertake um, for a variety of reasons. But um, um, in Australia, for example, when we introduced the pneumococcal conjugate vaccine, which is the vaccine to um, prevent this uh, type of pneumonia, we saw a decline in hospitalisations from childhood pneumonia nationwide. Mm-hmm. And yep. the and USA found the same thing. So by up to 25-30%. Wow. So we estimate that pneumococcus causes somewhere between about 25 and 30% of all childhood pneumonia.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, you, you must read the news at the moment and see some of this, uh, you know, this retraction of the use of vaccination in, in the Western world. and be, And given where you've been working, you must be horrified to see this.
4: Yeah, I think um, it's <laughs> an understatement. Yes, yeah. but you know, I was in Laos a couple of years ago, and I do work there. But at the time, I was working with WHO on this on, on pneumococcal conjugate vaccine and HPV. But at the time, the immunisation officer I was working in was dealing with the diphtheria outbreak in the country, and in a very remote village on the on the corner of Vietnam, on the edge of Vietnam, which took hours to sort of get to, there were three children in one family day after day that just died from diphtheria mm. so i mean it's just um yeah it's uh, it, it you know people have individual choices you know you can understand that but when you see where um you know in countries where children and families live where they have no choices and have no access and um you know families were just you know, just give anything to um, to get these vaccines, and because they can't get them by and large because of the cost or the health infrastructure or whatever it is, it's um, it's um, yeah, it is a it's mm. a very different mm. um, contrast between living here and certainly what families have to go through mm. in uh, in their countries.
1: Now, I, want, I want to quiz you on this choice element because I think this is a fascinating um, use of terminology that people people are putting out there. That you know, I choose not to vaccinate. If more and more people, um, you know, uh, it's their right to do so, take this choice, then we are extending towards the situation you've seen, for example, in Vietnam, where that choice becomes one of very, very high risk. I mean, at the moment, people can take that choice because the risk here is extremely low. But how, how long do you think it would be, given the current sort of growth of this, this movement of people who are not vaccinating before, that choice becomes very high risk.
4: Mm. Well, for measles, you need very high coverage. For example, you need about 95% of the population to be covered with measles vaccine to try and prevent an outbreak because mm-hmm. measles mm-hmm. is highly contagious. Yep. Mm-hmm. If, you're not, you know, if you're not immune and you're sitting in a room like we are and somebody's got measles, you're likely to get it because it's just a very, very transmissible um, um, virus. So um, different vaccines are different, but, um, for example, pertussis vaccine, there's been a huge problem with uh, um, Whooping cough and mm, little yeah, babies dying. Yeah. You know, it's uh, um, because they're too young to be vaccinated. So being in contact with other children or adults, etc. So um, it it doesn't take. Doesn't you know, take doesn't much. Doesn't take much, yeah. yeah.
1: And, uh, I mean, just, just to sort of put this away, the, the, the sort of pseudoscience material that came out years ago that was linking autism with vaccines has now been totally discredited, is my understanding. Is that Correct. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, so, the, so if you want to just follow the science, folks, the science only has one part of this, and that is vaccinations save lives, and the, the negative part is not there is, that, is that right? Yes. Yeah. I mean
4: all all drugs, all vaccines, every, everything has side effects. No, it's Panadol. completely exactly <laughs> yeah. yeah. You yeah. know, if you take excess uh, Panadol which you can buy over mm. the counter, yeah, you can get liver you. failure. Yeah, yeah, it can yeah. kill you. Yeah. So yeah, so nothing's risk free. But mm. in terms of getting the disease and the the sequelae mm. or the follow-on from um, that disease compared to the risks, it's sort of mm. you know, it you have being vaccinated far outweighs um, the risk of yeah. Um, yeah, from the vaccination.
1: Well Fiona it's great talking to and we hope that this work in some of these countries that you've been working in continues and hopefully the the finances will be there at some stage to to help these families access some of the vaccines that we take for granted. Um, Good luck, especially with the the newborn stuff and and some of that work and I know you're also working on a project in Fiji at the moment as well. That that sounds um, interesting. So uh, keep up the good work. We hope um, the coverage continues. Thank you. Associate Professor Fiona Russells from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and is a paediatrician um, working at the Children's Hospital. We're pretty much out of time, folks. Uh, Dr Lauren, big week ahead.
2: Yeah, lots, of, lots on this week, actually. Putting
1: in grants and yes,
2: stuff. Yes, yes. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's always a fun time of year. But, um, yes, fingers crossed that the 12% of successful grants might be us this 12%. year. 12%? Yeah, apparently. That's the estimated predictions up this year. Up to 12%. Up to 12%. Yeah, up to
1: 12%. <laughs> I was going to yeah. say, I mean, you know, if, they were, if they were kind. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They'd make, it, they'd make it 10, yeah. so you could just say one in 10 of us.
2: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because if you have to say
1: 12%, it's just it's harder to... People can't remember the But I'm, like I'm
2: hanging on to that 2%. You should. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's, that's your, a that's your bit. percent. That's me. Oh, it, could, yeah.
1: it could be you. And uh, Dr. Catherine, are you, are you putting in grants?
3: I am as well, yes. Oh, and I'm geez. feeling a little bit disheartened after the first uh, guest we had on today saying <laughs> the rates are even worse for females, so potentially that
1: 12% <laughs> may, may, not, may be a You yes. You know that staircase we walk out on the way out of the station? Just make sure you walk behind... <laughs> Dr Lauren, <Yeah>,
4: because
1: <laughs> uh, you guys are in the same pool, so yeah. mm, yes. And Chris K.P.? Uh, I'm going to be paying
0: taxes so these guys have got some grants to, uh, <laughs> to use, uh, but not very much. <laughs> As will I.
1: Folks, thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Go Go this week. We're going to hand you over now to Cam and Matt from Eat It, who are going to cook you up a storm. We will be back uh, next week with some more fabulous guests in science. Until then, keep listening to Triple R. Remember, science is everywhere, and we will chat again soon. Have a great Sunday.